I'm Philippe de Montebello, and it is my immense pleasure to welcome you once more to the Picture Conversations with Aquavella Galleries. This episode of the Picture Podcast features a conversation between poet and critic Adam Kirsch and artist Jacob Elchanani, whose recent works on canvas are now on view at Aquavella Galleries in New York. Guggenheim fellow Adam Kirsch previously served as poetry critic at the New Republic. His recent writings have been featured in The New Yorker, The New York Review of Books, and Tablet, where he is a contributing editor. Jacob Elchanani is often referred to as the grandfather of micro-drawing. His exquisitely detailed pen and ink drawings feature thousands of hand-drawn, nearly microscopic pen strokes and cross-hatches which coalesce into undulating masses and abstract forms. Born in Casablanca with a childhood in Israel, Jacob spoke with Adam from his Soho studio in New York, where Jacob has lived and worked for nearly 50 years. On behalf of Jacob Elchanani and Adam Kirsch, welcome once again to the picture. My name is Adam Kirsch. I'm very happy to be talking today to Jacob Elhanani. Jacob, it's been about a year since I visited your studio and got to see some of your works in progress. How has this last year been for you during the pandemic? I've often thought about your unique practice, which I know we'll discuss, that maybe it wasn't as much of a change for you as it might be for some other people during all of these events. Absolutely. Like all the last 45 years, the only difference is that during the last 45 years in New York, I, every hour or two, I had a visit and that disappeared completely. Those visits really help you to be able to be with human contact and talk to people. I mean, and it was tough this year. I wonder, in the past, you haven't used uh, any kind of computer technology. You don't have an email address. Has that changed at all? No, none of them changed. There is a cell phone, which I am able to have all the information I want in French, Hebrew, in English. I mean, that's change, but not any contact. I I can listen and work. I cannot look at my canvas or drawing and look at the screen. Right. So I was always a shortwave radio person. I was more of a radio and magazine newspaper, but I cannot have a computer in front of me and work on the same time yet. Your work is very manual, very close-up and personal freehand drawing. Is that right? Well, uh, it's not only, as the Italian call it, tutto fatto a mano by hand. And everything in Italy, which was made by hand, was supposed to be more valuable than by machine. I also prepare my own canvases, my own paper, and I don't let anyone in my studio, not assistant, not a cleaning person, Anyone in presence, well, while I'm work, a slight mistake, the line is affected. So you learn to develop your own strict rule and you know the atmosphere. So uh, there are close to 70 unwritten rules, which maybe I should write one day, that only I know about executing the work. I know about the pen, the size of the paper, the thickness of the paper, the time of the day, the weather, so many different rules. You even could tell that an ink may spread in August much more than in February, which means the cold weather will make a, a line which is slightly more 
precise than in August. So even weather effect. In the end of the day, after 10 hours of drawing, my hand may shake a little bit, tire. In the morning, the lines are straight. If you make one mistake on a paper, you destroy the whole two months of work. If you make a mistake on a canvas, you could erase, you could scratch, remove the gesso, and then work again. So my fear was making mistake on large one, which I did, but at least I'm able to achieve a, I hope in the future, even better work. But the goal is to constantly to challenge yourself, how uh, fine you could do your work. I'm happy that there are mistakes in the world because it's proof it's not a computer, it's not a machine. That's how you tell the difference between handmade Persian tapestry versus a machine made. Machine don't make mistakes. Human beings make mistakes, and I'm very happy to show my mistake to my friend who came to visit. The works in the new show are all works on canvas. What was the time period that you made them in? Was it over the last couple of years? The work were made in the last three years, uh, specifically the large one, were made in the last three years. I noticed that I could work with the length of my arms, from my hand to the shoulder, twice. Meaning I could go from the other side of the canvas. So my canvases are no longer more than 50 by 50. Otherwise, I have to start work standing. And standing, it's a problem with a quill. Some of them were hard labor compared to others. Art is not measured by, by time. Otherwise, I'll be more expensive than, than other artists. But I sometimes know and feel that certain pieces were took three times as much. So I sometimes sneak and say to someone, I think you should, it's a very rare one. I don't know if I'll repeat it again. However, I was able to produce as much work because of the corona. There's no question about it. It helped me to, there was not that much to do. They were sometimes barely going out only to buy food. Your handmade and, and particularly the the dedication, the extreme craftsmanship of being over the drawing 10 hours a day, does that feel countercultural to you? Does that feel like something that runs against the grain of how art is made now? I was considered a local. They said there is a crazy guy on Broadway sitting, making very little tiny line, and they call me minimalist. And I say, well, I should call myself a maximalist. Why do they call me minimalist? Minimalist is usually two, three line. There was a certain kind of anger. They did, nobody wanted to accept me. I was not part of a, a movement. And artists did not want to hang around my work in a group show because my work apparently showed how fast their work was made. <laughs> so it was a very, very funny situation. And they did not consider me an artist. They, they called me a graphic a designer, or if I was ink on canvas, they say it's not painting. It should be in a drawing show. I was excluded from painting show. And then it was very funny how they classified me as an outsider. But usually an outsider is not does not go to art school. Outsider artists don't read the New York Times every day and art criticism. Outsider is someone who is out of the circle. And that was not my case. But they tried to put me in that category. And yet 
I never resemble anyone. I didn't look like anybody else. So people did not remember my name, but they used to say, do you know an artist to make those little tiny line? And I, I was very happy with that description, but there is no question about it. There were many people who say, you should go back to your country. You don't have a chance here. I mean, you don't speak the language, don't have the contact. You didn't go to university here. I mean, so it was tough in the beginning, but I think that uh, the fact that you were totally free from any responsibility, no children, no girlfriend, nobody wanted to be with me. I didn't have a penny. And you were totally free for the first, whatever, 15 years. And it's very cheap rent, $150 for a big loft, uh, 15 years of rent strike. You were able to concentrate on your toughest work for the first 15 years. I see it that way. I understood that when my son was born and then I realized how my life changed. But I was lucky that circumstance gave me a lot of space, a lot of time and no money. My art collectors had lots of money, no space and no time. <laughs> it's funny to think of, of you being thought of as an outsider artist because, in fact, you were living in the starting in the 1970s in Soho, right at the heart of a lot of what was going on in terms of minimalism. Is that right? What, what year did you come to New York and what was going on in Soho at that time? Well, my, my first visit was in January 1971, when an artist in Paris yelled at me and said to me, what are you doing here? If I was 21 years old, I was going to New York. Paris is not the Paris I knew between the war, before the war. His name was Ardon, and he was a student of Paul Klee in Munich. And uh, he yelled at me, he said, go to New York. So I decided to go to sit, and I was fascinated by New York. I was exposed for the first time to minimalism, to non-figurative art. And that was a shock for me, which my hero were other artists that I knew in Europe. If Tanguy, I mean, Henri Michaud. And I was influenced by Dürer and, and the Diderot encyclopedia illustration. Specifically, when you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, drawing, engraving, as a kid, we used to be fascinated by all of that. And that influenced me a lot. And by 1972, I have started eliminating any figuration and start influenced by the minimalism, Solowit, Agnes Martin, which appear already in my early work, but any sign of figuration, portrait, cartoon, landscape, nude, disappeared. But life in New York was tough. When I ran out of money, I went back to Paris, back to Israel. And by 1972, left again New York. 73, in my way to New York, I was stuck in back in Israel. I was there for six months, the Yom Kippur War, and then a week after I was released, I was in New York and find the loft where I'm we're now recording the conversation. So I'm in this loft will be in three years, will be half of a century, 50 years. So you talked about coming from, from Paris and before that from Israel. Where were you born? And uh, tell us a little bit about your earliest years. Uh, I was born in Casablanca. My parents were 
literally where the first generation raced Alliance Francaise Israelite, which was a French Alliance Francaise school. They were already the generation that went to high school. So we spoke French at home. Arabic I picked up, obviously, for my grandparents and the street and uh, the children, the neighbor. We moved when the entire Jewish community left to Israel in 1953. And uh, in Israel, we were the generation not that founded the country, the generation that built the country. So there was no television, no telephone, no electricity in certain villages. And the founder decided we should be the generation that work hard, build, and we plant and we carry and remove stones. So we were not spoiled. We were two radio stations and newspapers were everywhere, books and newspapers. In Tel Aviv, we had 23 daily newspapers. When I came to New York, I saw only three newspapers. And I laugh and I say I was used to, to 23 newspapers. And I could say that paper, turning the page of the newspaper of a book and touching the paper affect me with my development. On a balcony the size of, whatever, 10 foot with a small table, I was able to take a piece of paper in the age of 10 years old and draw. And I took my time to draw on a paper. Paper was expensive in a country where there is no tree. So I start to work slowly and slowly and, and really more details the way my food was cut. When you went to eat, you had a tabbouleh, which was made from small, cutting small salad. The Jews from Arab country were cutting their meal very small. The European were a bigger chunk. We were very much influenced by an abandoned amount of time. And we had an abandoned amount of in a sense, uh, it's a more detail, uh, and that's how, in a way, I developed myself. But we did live a very Francophone life. Everybody spoke French, the aunts, the cousins, every, everybody continued. And I went to school where we were 40 kids speaking 28 different languages. We were exposed to so many different traditions. And my feeling that my since my father still used to write letters with ink, dipping the quill in the ink the way they did in the French school, which they do it until now, I hear. We used to work with the Ephron and Tablier, and I remember the special paper that absorbs the ink after you wrote a letter. So all that tradition of the French contemporary modern, the Islamic life in Morocco, building a new country with whatever, a whole new technology, hard labor building, made my life in New York like a piece of cake. Meaning it was nothing to compare to what I was used to. The Spartan conditions. Even my son said to me, Dad, you're more Spartan than mom. I said, how do you know about the word Spartan? He said, well, I went to school. I learned about Spartan. Because I keep telling him not to waste. And so that, that Spartan approach... I believe that if I was born in Chicago or went to school in RISD, I was not making that kind of father that I'm making. There's no question about that my background prepared me. And I remember people coming to see me living illegally in a loft, I mean, sleeping on a futon, because they used to come to check to make sure you don't sleep here. 
And I said it to friend. I mean, I have water, I have a place to sleep, and I don't have to have any job. I never left the studio, not for teaching, not for, in a sense, vacation. There is no, I never had money to go to Kennedy Airport, so there was no question of going to Paris or going elsewhere. Or they didn't have money to, but the whole idea that you were able to work 12 hours a day on your drawing without having a job, that was amazing. Any other country artist had to teach, had to have a side job. The American charitable quality, which in buying and supporting you, even if they did not understand, understood, that was, I realized that I have the best place to be. Huge space, very little expense, and people were supporting out of mercy and pity, I used to call it. When in that early environment, it seems like there wouldn't have been a lot of room for art education or for uh, training as an artist. When did you realize that that's what you wanted to do? And what was it like having that vocation and in that time and place? Well, I knew already that immediately as I finished my years of art school and army combined together, I I knew that all that I wanted to do is to make art every day. We had a very naive European approach that an artist should make art and not be a waitress. We we had the fantasy that Van Gogh and Manet, we read about all the tradition. And the idea of coming to New York to be a waiter seems to me a little bit weird. So I simply wanted that bohemian approach to simply work, self-imposed rule of working every day 10 hours. Now, remember, you're in exile. You didn't have to celebrate the American holiday, the French holiday, the Jewish holiday, the Israeli holiday. You did not have to go not to, not to wedding, not to funeral, not to bar mitzvah. Being in exile allowed you to really work every day and push aside all those other celebrations. Later on, it changed, but... It was clear to me that since I developed already that style that take hours and hours and hours of work, it was clear to me I cannot afford to have a nine to five job. I'll never be able to produce work like that. I'll be an amateur. I'll produce three, four drawing a year. As a matter of fact, there was a gallery owner who showed me on a group show and he said to me, ah, you're going to do it for another two, three years, and then you will switch to doing something else. There's no way that an artist could do that for the next 40 years, 50 years. That's how he, and he did, said it to me in 1976. He did not want to work with me, believing that I will not make more two, three years and then switch to something else. So there was influence of every artist around me. If I was coming to New York in 1980, I was probably figurative. There is no question about that. My being here in 1970, January 70, already exposed to all what's going on here, affect my direction the same way that Casablanca, Israel, Paris. Uh, when people say to me in a, in a panel, why did you move to America? And I say, not because of starvation or anti-Semitism or Nazism or whatever the reason I said your grandparents or parents came over here or, or and not because of a love story. I came over because of space. And they said to me, what? And I say, yes, 
I wanted to go back to Paris and I find a 20 square feet, 200 square feet for $150. And I say, what? That's insane. I could get a loft for 3,000 square feet in New York. New York, at that time, those illegal lofts were the cheapest place for an artist to live. And I got on a plane the day after in the morning. There was a village voice was distributed for it on Wednesday. I arrived on Tuesday night. You know, it's seven o'clock in the morning, I find my loft. There were more empty lofts than there were artists to occupy them. And I didn't understand why artists who live in Florida and New Jersey and Philadelphia are not moving back to the area here. I I came from all over the combination of the space and lack of means, meaning as in a nice way to put it than saying poverty, made me able to do this kind of work. And I also was working out of fear, working every day so I could sell my work and pay my bill. I was literally working day and night to produce better work than last year. Uh, I was afraid that I may not be able to support myself, but I think that stamina and endurance play more of a role than talent. It did help me to show my quick ability to make a cartoon or a landscape or a portrait, it convinced that somehow the collectors who wanted to help me, they say, ah, yeah, he's not only making line, he know how to draw my dogs or how to draw, that help. There is no question about it. We had to be uh, stubborn and you had to even be strong enough to listen to some of the way artists used to see me as a weirdo or strange, and it came out to be a blessing because now they know that all that I, my contribution is making the bringing drawing to an extreme that my eyes or my hand could make. Your style, you talk about the influence of minimalism, but in a way, and I wonder if this was conscious and deliberate, there's also this great tradition of Jewish micrography, of very small writing of text, uh, in the commentaries of other texts as marginalia, and in particular in Islamic countries as sort of uh, non-figurative patterns, which was imitating or, or sort of influenced by the Islamic art around them. Were you conscious of that inheritance when you started this kind of drawing? Uh, not not when I start. Uh, living in a small country, you wanted to build a an international reputation in a sense. You wanted to be more modern, contemporary. We all wanted to be more French or whatever, being like in Paris and New York. It happened more in New York after 10 years after I've been in New York, since I've been using mark making by line, square, and then come out that I could use the Hebrew characters as mark making, not as writing. I never write anything there. I simply play with the letters, noticing obviously as many people wanted me to uh, write a ketubah for their wedding, which is a contract, a Jewish contract wedding tradition. And I say, no, I'm not uh, making Jewish art, but I used the letters as a mark making, because I realized that when I signed my name, I don't need to look it. You could do it automatically. I was able to automatically uh, relax my hand from straight line into curving line. 
by using character of the Hebrew alphabet. Many of the micrography, which were done by Jews in Europe, had figurative element. It was a, an excuse to make a figurative drawing in a pretext of sending a letter to someone. You could have drawn a, a view of Jerusalem and write, how are you, how is your children, and literally letters that people said in the image of a portrait of someone. I wanted to make my contribution in micrography by not having any meaning, using only the abstract form of micrography and uh, to add a new approach to the history of micrography. But there is no question about that it existed in the way we saw the mosque in Morocco, the detail in the entire custom embroidery of my mother, the foulard, the headscarf of my grandmother had all the colors you could imagine, the basket, it in every aspect of life, the detail were there. So there was a strict influence of my ability to write small, an anecdote which I keep talking about it, is that once our teacher punished all the class to write 20 times by tomorrow morning to write a poem, a portion from the prayer and everybody brought 20 pages in the morning. I brought only one page. I wrote very, very small, 20, 10 times on one page and another side, another 10 times microscopically. I didn't want to waste paper because paper for me was for drawing and sketches. So I think that there was many, many influence that I grew up with. And it's, it's very strange to see my work now at the Guggenheim Museum in in a show in the show is minimalist that since they were in Soho in the 70s, they were 300 minimalists. As soon as the fashion changed, they all went to colors and figuration. I was among the ones who stayed and did not change. Many artists say to me, yeah, between 72 and 74, I used to make drawing like you. Or, or I, I understood that you have to be honest about your own situation and you cannot switch every time. I mean, the, my hero at that time were Agnes Martin and Sola Witt and, and many of the European artists who worked in my tradition. But I understood that you could leave the part that you receive slightly higher than you receive it, if you can. And I'm very happy with the fact that I'm known for bringing those micro lines to as, as extreme as I can. Maybe a new generation will be able to make it even more detailed. But I also was against reproduction by print and etchings and photography and new technology to a point that I refuse to make any print. So if anyone ever take one of my original and make a print out of it, they'll be caught. They will say the artist never made a print. To appreciate the level of detail in the line drawing, it is, I think, important to see the original uh, in reproduction, what looks like a sort of area of gray when you see it in the original is, is extremely finely meshed, cross-hatched lines, which require an incredible amount of manual control. And to do it for 10 or 12 hours a day over years and years, did you find that it got easier or harder over time? Has your process changed at all in that time? Until the age of 65, 
I never had to wear glasses. In the last seven years, eight years, I'm, I have to read the newspaper with glasses and I have to work with glasses, not never worked with magnifying glass. That's how you lose your eyesight if you work with magnifying glass. That's how in the old time they used to lose their eyesight. I take break every 12 minutes, every 20 minutes. So I could see a slow effect of the eyes. The hand is perfectly. However, as the Torah say, as you get older, time is short and work is long. I don't know how many years I have. I want to be able to do as maximum before I leave. So I, I have no idea if I have three more years or 23 more years. So I think that now I'm working harder because I value every day and every year. I want more detailed work, more better work than I can do right now. Looking back, as we say, the age of regret, looking back, I'm not sorry that I've been working that way in the last 40 years. When you think about countercultural, there's nothing more countercultural now than doing one thing without interruption for an entire day, right? I think most people feel that they can barely concentrate on something for two minutes at a time before they have an email or they have a, a text. Uh, things are constantly jumping in and out of your attention. So you've really uh, sort of shut the door on this entire absolutely digital civilization. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's no other way I could do the work. I really do not understand how it's possible. And that calmness and that silence and that ability to listen to, uh, for years I used to listen to, I was a, a, a listening to politics as, as almost as a freak uh, on every country and every issue and while I'm working and not to music which served me a lot in some of the cocktail parties in New York when people say, I like what you have to say, what you have to say, I would love to see what you do. And it did help me to be expert on Africa, on Islam, on the Middle East, on the French or Judaism, on many issues that I was able to talk. But that's because I was able to listen to radio as a work. I was at home all the time. In an anecdote which had to do with discipline, somebody said to me, where were you when John Lennon was shot? So I was one o'clock in the morning on my drawing table. Same things happened with Itzhak Rabin. Same thing happened with Bashir Jumayel and, and uh, the Francis Monaco from Monaco. But then I realized, wow, I, I was all the time on my drawing table. My point is, you, you try to challenge yourself. I'm trying to see if I could do a better work than I did yesterday. The element of time was not only the time it takes to do the work, but fighting the time I have on the planet. I, there will be no work done once you're gone. You could do the work when you're alive. And when work leaves your studio, I learned it from Picasso. He was right. He said, let work out. Let them live and live to different homes and live in different places. And they will eventually, uh, I could not, uh, in the beginning, I could never sell my work. So they were in my flat file. So I told a friend, I kept those drawing for 45 years. Now they're keeping me. <laughs> well, that sounds like it might be a good uh, place to end. Jacob, it was a pleasure talking to you today. 
I look forward to seeing your future work. Thank you very much. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us in this episode of The Picture, Conversations with Aquavella Galleries. Follow us on Instagram and subscribe to our email newsletter to keep up to date on exhibitions and artist news. Be sure to subscribe to The Picture to hear other episodes in the series featuring artists, curators, journalists, and collectors. For Jacob El-Hanani and Adam Kirsch, and from all of us at Aquabella Galleries, thank you for listening.